Well, I like to label my message this morning, the rejection that nobody wants. If I can talk from the thought of the rejection that nobody wants. Many of us have stories of rejection, right? I'm sure you have your own story of what rejection has looked like in your life. Um, Some of you know about being curved by that pretty girl that you've been trying to take on a date. Or maybe you were trying to take her to homecoming or prom. Maybe some of you are here and you know what it's like for that cute boy that you've been wanting to take on a date or whatever the case, and they left you on red. Or perhaps that's not your story at all. Maybe it's you didn't get the client that you wanted for your real estate portfolio. That job application that you, you, you submitted many applications over and over and over again, and you have not received any type of callback from the hiring manager. You don't know if the application was just left on the desk. You don't know if the application was thrown into the trash. You just never heard anything back. By the way, growing up, there were two companies that I really, really wanted to work for. The first one, you may laugh at this, but it's, it's okay. The first one is McDonald's. I wanted to work for McDonald's so bad. One, because I was in high school, and all of my friends worked for McDonald's. That was like the cool place to go. And I remember putting application and didn't hear anything back. And then the other company I wanted to work for was Target. Um, my first year in college when I was in New York, they emphatically called it Target. And I wanted to work there because Target was paying way more than any other place on the campus or around the campus. Until this day, I still haven't heard anything back <laughs> from McDonald's or Target. I'm still upset about it. I don't care. I'll talk to my therapist about it later. But what I'm saying is rejection. We all face rejection to some degree. Even the great Warren Buffett, you know Buffett, he's a great investor and philanthropist who is worth around $110 billion. And at age 19, he tried to get into his dream school Harvard University. And guess what? It didn't happen. This is what he says. He says, I spent 10 minutes with the Harvard alumnus who was doing the interview, and he assessed my capabilities and turned me down. This is Warren Buffett, who can buy Harvard University. (laughs) Rejection. We all face it. It comes in different forms. It comes in different sizes. It comes in different shapes. But there's a certain kind of rejection that has eternal ramifications. There's a certain type of rejection that is more costly than not getting into Harvard. That's more costly than not getting the spouse that you wanted. 
That's more costly than not getting the job you wanted. And this rejection comes from God. And let me submit to you, nobody wants this kind of rejection. Our passage opens up with Yahweh sending Saul on a mission. He sends Saul on a mission in verses 2 and 3. Let me read it to you. It says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel. In opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That word there, devoted to destruction, or that phrase, devoted to destruction, is repeated about seven or eight times-ish in 1 Samuel 15, and it means to annihilate everything. Don't leave anything breathing. Now, I understand that there's an emotional challenge here as we read this, right? Because it says women, children, the animals to kill them. And I know that if we want to be honest with ourselves, there are certain things that we read in the Bible that we're kind of like, ooh, what's going on there? It's challenging for us. It's an emotional challenge. Why would God want this to happen? Why would God allow this to happen? Why is God sending Saul to do this? There's some emotional challenges here. I remember when I was in college and I was uh, sharing the message of the gospel, or at least trying to, with other people on the campus, okay? And it was fascinating because as I was talking with this particular individual, um, it was very fascinating just talking about God's love, God's grace, God's mercy. All of those types of things are pretty much really received for the most part. You've got your exceptions. But generally speaking, no one really has an issue with God's love, God's grace, God's mercy. In fact, that is something that we all want, we all welcome. But the idea of God's judgment, God's wrath, God's discipline, that is something that rubs us the wrong way. It's something that we don't want to actually really deal with. Why? Because maybe it's uncomfortable. Maybe we think about the judgment of God and we think about friends and family and loved ones that may not know Jesus. It's just challenging and, and, and difficult. We're comfortable with the positive attributes of God. But because it's in the Bible, because as pastor, I'm called to preach the whole counsel of God, it's important for us to be biblically rooted in what is actually going on here. And in Psalm 9, 7 through 8, it does say Yahweh sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world. With righteousness, he judges the peoples with uprightness. So there is an aspect to God that he is the judge. Amen? And because he's the judge, because he has all power and all authority, he is sovereign, he's in control, and he created everything, essentially, God can do what he wants. 
In fact, I would submit to you, if you were God, you would do exactly what you want to do. Matter of fact, some of you are here actually doing that. Right? So here is what's going on in this context here. Regarding this command from God, even though it's tough for us to hear and read, understand that this is in the context of judgment. I say that because in verse 18, it says, And the Lord sent you on a mission, sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, (laughs) the Amalekites. So sinners deserve judgment. Because they don't follow and obey God. Also, when you think about who the Amalekites were, in the Old Testament, when you go and read the book of Exodus, these are people that opposed the people of God. These are people that opposed God's people. So God said, you know what? There's going to be vengeance. There's going to be judgment on these particular people. And yes, this includes everybody. They opposed the people of God when God saved Israel out of the bondage of slavery in in, in Egypt. This was the first people group that was messing with God's people. So Saul goes on this mission, and he executes judgment on these people. And on the surface level, it looks like Saul obeyed. It looks like he obeyed God until you read verse 9. And it says, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So they devoted a lot of things to destruction, but they spared the king. King Agag was the king of the uh, Amalekites. For some reason, we don't really know. I mean, we can speculate why Saul did this, but he didn't follow through with everything Yahweh told him to do. He spared King Agag. As we park right there just for a a moment. I think it's important for us to understand as a one thing that we can learn so far from this text, half-hearted obedience is still disobedience. Half-hearted or partial obedience is still disobedience to God. We see in the text that Saul did this, but he did not follow through. I want to ask about you. What are ways that God has called you to do certain things, things that you know that you should do, but you kind of half do it? You kind of partially do it. And you can have your reasons trying to rationalize, trying to justify what it is, but in one sense, you're like Saul. Half-hearted obedience is still disobedience to God. If I can make it plain, let's talk about your marriage. In ways that you know that you should fully obey God, you know, First Peter talks about this idea of living with your spouse in an understanding way. Amen? Can't say amen, ought to say ouch. 
Many of us are here going through marital issues, marital strife, because in one sense, we are half obeying. But we're not fully obeying. The Bible also talks about in Ephesians that we should, husbands that is, wash our wives with the water of the word. Don't raise your hand. Just look straight. But how many men are actually doing that, honestly? But you were in a car and you talked about Jesus, so that's like halfway kind of doing it. There are other commands that I can continue to keep going. That's just in the realm of of marriage. And for those that are single, you're not off the hook either. There are aspects as well, even from a single perspective, in terms of, let's just say, loving your neighbor as yourself. We could just use that one. That applies to married people too, but just so my single folk is not left out. What are ways you have obey that? That is a command that's repeated from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But you see, maybe it's somebody that may be homeless. Maybe it's somebody that may not have the financial resources that you may have, and you look at them as you're on the street, as you're driving, whatever the case is, and you look at them with total disgust. These are things you would never tell someone else, but ultimately God knows. But then you come into the church to worship on Sunday and act like nothing happened happen. But because you went to church, (laughs) you kind of half obeyed God. There's so many different ways that we can break this out. What about gathering with the people of God? Amen? You know, the Bible actually says that we should gather, we should be in the same vicinity with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And many of you actually say, you know what, I'm not going to gather, but I'm going to watch online. Uh Uh-oh. Now, for the record, for those that watch online, I understand that there is a place and time for that. You're sick and all that type of stuff, blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying it's inherently wrong to watch online. There are reasons and stuff like that. But some of you are half obeying the command. But because you got your, quote, unquote, Christian fix for the day, you are, are, are good. There's so many different ways that we partially obey, and I just want to say that partial obedience is still disobedience to God. And that's something that we do need to repent for. We do need to believe and, and, and follow Jesus and, and help ask the Holy Spirit to help us turn away from those types of things, whatever those things are, so that we can actually be about God's business. Amen? Partial obedience Because of Saul's partial obedience, we see that he regrets, God that is, God regrets, God rejects, and God removes Saul from his kingship. We see this in verses 10 through 31. 
Yahweh regrets, rejects, and removes Saul. It says in verse 10 that the word of the Lord came to Saul. By the way, in the Bible, you have this phrase of the word of the Lord coming to someone. We see this, that it comes to Samuel. It also comes to a lot of other different people. When the word of the Lord comes, there is an obligation of whatever is being said that it must be not only said but also done. And I think it's fascinating that God rejects Saul because if you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8, God's people rejected God and said they wanted a king. Remember? They wanted to be like the culture. They wanted to be like the nations around them. And just, I guess, from, as I read it, it's more comical. God is rejecting the king <laughs> that God's people initially wanted. He rejects Saul. So Samuel has to go and confront Saul and listen to Saul's response. It is very, very interesting. This is the response here in verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. Not quite, Saul. But it is interesting, in his mind, he is rationalizing. He thought, like, no, I perform what God called me to do. Then listen in verses 20 through 21. And Saul said to Samuel, this is the second time he's saying this, I have obeyed the voice of Yahweh. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to Yahweh, your God, in Gilgal. So I guess in Saul's mind, he's saying, well, I did this, but I'm here, I did some sacrifices for you. And Samuel helps us understand what's really going on here. If we read this too quickly, we will kind of miss what's going on. But I think this is very interesting. Verse 22, Samuel's response. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption, as, is as an inquiry and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he also has rejected you from being king. The main passage, or the main point of this passage, we can say that Essentially, disobeying God, disobeying Yahweh, results in unwanted consequences. When we disobey God, when we disobey his word, it results in unwanted consequences. You see, what Saul is doing here is pretty superficial, in a lot of ways, Saul's kind of just going through the motions. He thinks he's okay with God by doing this, and he's trying to justify and rationalize in his head that he did obey, when in reality he did not fully. And if I can be real, 
I think some of you are here this morning and you think that you're okay with God because you just go through the motions. Uh, You go through the motions of maybe just serving in ministry. You're doing your part of serving. Or maybe you're here and you are a person, well, you know, I give financially, so there's my part. Or whatever it is that you want to rationalize and think in your head. But some of you are here and you're just going through the motions. And I want to encourage you that the Spirit of God is within you. And Ephesians 2.5 says that you should be made alive in Christ. In some sense, there will be seasons and times where, you know, we go on our journey. Sometimes it's very highs. Sometimes it's very low. Sometimes it's in the middle. But what I want to say is, if you are here and you're going through the motions, I genuinely mean this. Come talk with one of the pastors so we can pray for you, so we can maybe even challenge you. So we can listen to you. Whatever it is, don't just come going through the motions because that doesn't last. Eventually, you will burn out. Eventually, you will start being more cynical. Eventually, you will become more uh, uh, distraught with the church. And before you know it, you start drifting and drifting and drifting. And you start being with a company of people that is now encouraging you to do things that you know are not of God. But because you're not a part of, because you're not around the family of God, because you're not doing that, you get influenced. And I just want to say, again, pastorally, you're here and you are going through the motions. Come see us. Come talk to us. Amen? Don't just be a person going through the motions. As we continue on, Saul has this tendency to try and sweep things under the rug. We see in verse 25 where it says here, Now therefore, now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. In essence, what Saul is really saying, okay, like, yes, I'm sorry, I apologize. Hey, can let's, let's get back to ministry. Let's get back to doing what I was doing. Let me get back to just being king. Yeah, 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 I know. Pardon my sin, but let's move on. He's sweeping stuff under the rug that shouldn't be swept under the rug, and he has probably this idolatry towards the kingship, I would say, and that's why he just wants to get back to business as usual. This is not something that is is appropriate or something that we should do. So as we park here, another lesson I think that we can learn is don't sweep things under the rug to just get back into ministry or leadership. Don't just sweep things, don't just sweep stuff under the rug to get back into ministry or to leadership. I mean, we can look at so many different examples, sadly, in our church culture. of people that had some type of prominent leadership role. Maybe they was a pastor. Maybe they was uh, in some type of high-ranking leadership position. And there's some type of issue. There's some type of scandal. There's some type of spiritual abuse. There's some type of situation. And you will see, oh, no, 
sweep it under the rug. Let me get back to doing what I was doing. We had a situation years and years ago where a person was pretty gifted in, in, in ministry. He was very gifted in a lot of different ways. And it was some things that were very troubling and alarming to us. But by God's grace, we tried to do our best of handling the situation. As we were trying to handle the situation, there were some parameters, some things that we put in place that said, hey, because of this, these things, as pastors, as elders, and the shepherds of, your, of the flock, here's what we think that you should not be doing for a period of time. Maybe indefinitely, but at least for a period of time. And sadly, that individual could not submit to the pastor's care and leadership. In some ways, sweeping things under the rug so he could get back to ministry, so he can get back to what he was doing. And that's a very, very, it's a danger when we have people that do that. Perhaps even whether it's in church or even in the, the workplace or marketplace, you may know situations of executives and bosses that essentially do the same thing. And I think from God's word, this is a caution to us that we should not sweep things under the rug just to get back to do what we were doing. There's an appropriate time for healing. There's an appropriate time for us just to relax and chill. There's an appropriate time for us to follow the wisdom and direction of the pastors and leaders that God has placed us under. That is also part of obeying. So, don't sweep things under the rug just to get back to ministry or, or, or leadership. Verses 32 through 35, it details essentially how Samuel had to finish what God told Saul to do. And in some ways, I feel kind of bad for King Agag because it says when his name was mentioned, he came cheerfully. And it's like, man, I don't think he realized he knows that he's about to get hacked to pieces. I mean, think about that. Think about that scene. He's, you know, he's cheerful, the text says, and Samuel has to do something that initially God told him that he had to do. So essentially, this is what happens in 1 Samuel 15, and we see Yahweh rejects Saul from his kingship. And this sets up chapter 16, which we'll talk about next week, and how um, essentially David comes to, to rise. But a couple of things for us to reflect on, which I've kind of already talked about already, right? The first thing is half-hearted obedience is not obedience, Second thing is don't sweep things under the rug just to get back to ministry or leadership. And lastly, and I think this hinges on this, the everything, our obedience to God is dependent on our faith in Jesus. Our obedience to God is dependent upon our faith in, in, in Jesus. In order for us to fully obey, it means we have to fully trust and we have to fully trust Jesus, the one who suffered and died, rose from the grave, conquered sin and death. And the Bible says anyone that believes in him will have eternal life. 
But it's interesting, too, when you read Jesus' story, he also is the one that knows rejection pretty well. It says that he came from heaven to earth, and his own people rejected him. John chapter 1, verse 12. Can you imagine the creator of heaven and earth created people in his image and likeness, and these same people are the ones rejecting God? He knew rejection very well. But what I want to say is, if you're here this morning, you don't have to reject God. And if you don't reject God, you will have eternal life and have life more abundantly. You have life everlasting through his death, burial, and resurrection. However, if you choose to reject God, then ultimately, like Saul, he will reject you. And that is the rejection that nobody wants because that's the rejection that has eternal consequences. And you think about the judgment on the Amalekites, those that fully and truly reject God, there's going to be judgment upon them. So the gift an invitation of the gospel is for you to believe, to believe in Jesus Christ, the one that we can trust and believe and bank on. And the church said, amen, amen. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father God, we pray this morning that you will receive us this morning. You will receive us as we believe in you, as we trust in you, as we hope in you, as we think about all your attributes, all your characteristics. Yes, we love your goodness. Yes, we love your grace. Yes, we love your mercy. We love all of those things. But a sober reality is also the fact that there is judgment coming. And the judgment is coming for those that ultimately reject Christ. And Lord, we want people to believe. We want them to have this genuine faith, this genuine belief that only comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would be able to regenerate dead hearts and make them alive in Christ. Help them be able to not only believe, but also to obey. Not perfectly, but faithfully. And we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty, mighty name. Amen.